0: So I started up my Substack again last week. It's a free weekly, or sort of weekly, journalism newsletter at Perlman.substack.com. And for my first one back, I dove into a fringe topic, the depressing career of Bobby Burak, Outkick the Coverage's 25-year-old media writer. And specifically, I touched upon the guy's jarring lack of decency and credibility, a history of unsubstantiated rumors, of fiction presented as fact, as one non-reported story after another. And what I walked away with was a reminder that, come day's end, all we really have is our integrity. And that people like this, like Bobby Burack of Owl Kick the Covers, may well be employed, may well even consider themselves part of the industry, but they are anything but journalists. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, The podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Amy Just, who covers the Nebraska Cornhuskers as a columnist for the Lincoln Journal Star and Husker Extra. And a warning, there's some serious discussions here about workplace sexual assault and harassment. This is episode number two hundred and ninety. Let's sling some.
1: Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese.
0: All right, Amy, thank you for doing this. You have a very sad looking Christmas tree behind you. I'm not trying to insult you for listeners here, but it's a sad Christmas tree. And um, it's nice that you adopted the little little artificial fellow and brought him into your house. Is that Costco?
1: No, no. I'm a single woman. Costco is too much for me. Uh, Target.
0: You are a, now a longtime sports writer. I mean, you graduated from Kansas in 2017. That makes you kind of a vet. You cover the Nebraska Cornhuskers for the Lincoln Journal Star. You also write for a Husker Extra as a sports columnist. And I want to start here with something we discussed briefly um, off the air. Uh, Mickey Joseph, who was the intern football coach in Nebraska after Scott Frost was let go, uh, was arrested in December. suspicion of strangulation and third-degree domestic assault. He's 54 years old, and that was it for him in Nebraska. You covered this guy. As a person, you enjoyed covering him. It seems like one of the perils of being a sports journalist in sort of a tight, small community is you sort of get to know people and you develop affections for people just as human beings. Mm -hmm. Some shit happens and it's like, oh, so how are you as a journalist, as a columnist, but also as a human being supposed to respond when something like this happens to someone you cover?
1: Yeah. So I've known him for a while. I've known his family for a while. So I covered him when he was at LSU, when I covered LSU and then I moved to New Orleans and he did a lot of recruiting in New Orleans. So we would, you know, catch up every once in a while. And yeah, it's really tough because you think you know somebody and then something like this happens and you realize that you don't. And it's just such a sobering reminder that All of the people that we cover have their own lives. Like we know that, right? But like, this is just a very scary example of that to where you think you know someone and then you realize that you don't. Um, So for me, I just processed like all of the, I went through every level of like emotion that you could in that moment. And then I did my job. Because that's what you have to do. Because I can be unbiased um, when reporting things out. And because you have to be. Because at the end of the day, like, that's your job. And when somebody fucked up, you have to hold them accountable. You can't ignore it. And so we just did the story, did a follow-up story. And we will continue to do stories as the news continues to come out. And he has more court appearances and all of
0: those things. It's an interesting sort of phenomenon in our business that um, we work in a field where we cover these high profile figures. And most of the people we're friends with in our life, family members, friends, don't do this job. So they will say to us, as they've said to me, and I'm sure they say to you, oh, what is so-and-so like? What's so-and-so like? What does he like? What does she like? What are they like? And I, when I was a younger writer, I'd be like, oh, Tori Hunter, he's a really cool guy, or oh, so-and-so, she's really cool. But then you realize you don't really know them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so when people ask me that question, I'm like, well, they've been good in my interactions with me, but, you know, you don't see every side of them. And I would say that even before this happened. So, because you don't know, you know, sometimes in our jobs and when you're in a small market, people come across as more friendly and you have more side conversations because the system just allows for that a little bit better. But at the end of the day, you don't really know them. You know a part of them, you know a side of them, but you don't have the full picture.
0: You've covered a really fascinating story there, which is sort of the, uh, or part of it, the downfall of Scott Frost, who arrived in Nebraska as a football coach years ago as sort of this favorite son, and he'd been a Cornhusker, et cetera. And uh, you have a column, Scott Frost finally loses AD Trev Alberts, and your lead was, it wasn't supposed to end this way. Four years and nine months ago, the University of Nebraska welcomed Scott Frost back with open arms. Frost, the first choice for NU's opening, returned to his alma mater as the man who could save Nebraska's football program from the depths of obscurity and launch the Huskers back into the national conversation. Heralded as a jubilant celebration, Frost's introductory press conference in 2017 featured a standing-room-only crowd that listened intently as he made prognostications that nearly everyone believed in. After coaching UCF to an unprecedented 13 in a record, Frost rejected the notion that he would bend to the knee of the Big Ten. No, Frost boldly pledged to make the Big Ten adjust to him. And I'm really fascinated by this because from afar, sitting here in California, whatever, 1,500 miles away, Scott Frost just came to symbolize everything shitty about a bad college football coach. And oh, this guy every week on social media, Frost does it again. Frost sucks. Frost needs to get fired. When you're that close to it and you're watching this thing fall apart and it finally ends, do you share those emotions? Are you like, this guy's a sucky football coach and this needs to end? Or do you view the nuance of it all?
1: I tried to look at the nuance of it all because I wasn't here for all of it. Like I had a look into it from my mom, who's a big Nebraska fan and has lamented about Scott Frost for the last few seasons. So I've known that it's been bad and I paid attention last season when they seemingly lost every game by single digit. And, you know, they were heralded as the best 3-9 and nine team to ever happen. But yeah, so my first game... Covering this team as an Ireland against Northwestern, a garbage team. This is like the toilet bowl of football games. And Nebraska loses after being up considerably early. And all of Northwestern's comeback happens after Scott Frost boneheadingly decided to do an onside kick, and it failed epically and everyone is like here we go again and they lost to northwestern and that was northwestern's only win this season and it's just how does this happen like if he didn't get in his own way i wonder if he'd still be here not just for that game but just in general
0: what do you mean by that get in his own way
1: for example that play in particular like he had handed play calling off to their offensive coordinator, and then he had left defense to the defensive coordinator, and he had left special teams to the special teams coordinator and just kind of left everybody to their own devices and was supposed to be more of a game manager this season. But he called the onside kick because he wanted to. You know, just things like that. Like, just don't get in your own way.
0: I've been fascinated recently by the hiring of Dion Sanders at Colorado. What has really fascinated me and you may disagree with me that's cool is the weird god complex of it all him posting these videos to like this music of god led me here to colorado and god why and literally talking to god in these videos while overlooking the stadium is just to me it's nut job crazy weird sort of thing and speaks to me in a way of the insanity of the co- of many big time college football coaches this god complex do you see how this happens? Do you see the development of God complex in coaches?
1: Yeah. So I haven't followed anybody other than Mickey Joseph from being an assistant to a head coach. But you can you can see how it happens, right? Because in society, there's our society in particular, there's just so much hero worship that comes in sports. And when everybody around you can never say a bad thing to you because Oh, you're the football coach, and you know, that's who we look at as in society as the people who should be the highest paid. Yeah. I just feel like it's a natural progression because there hasn't been anything to stop that. And it's been like that forever.
0: Did Frost have that or no?
1: But not when I was there. He just looked dejected and sullen and that he wanted to be done since I got there. Um, but maybe it was there before. I mean, reading the the lead to my column from when he got fired. I mean, he had to have a little bit of it, at least that day.
0: You wrote a piece, July 31st, 2022. Caffey's departure frustrating for everyone. And it's about the women's volleyball team in Nebraska. Unexpected and untimely. Those are two of the words Nebraska volleyball American Kayla Caffey used on Instagram on Friday to describe her departure from the program with roughly one week to go before practice begins. Unexpected and untimely indeed. And it's this actually really weird... Interesting story of this volleyball player, this very good volleyball player, who is in her eighth year of playing college volleyball. She transferred and sat out and COVID, the whole thing, eighth year. How does, especially college students, the reliance on social media impact your job as someone covering college athletes?
1: A ton, especially now in the days of the transfer transfer portal, like with Kathy and then with everybody else in football that decides to transfer or players that decide to, you know, at the beginning of their careers, commit to Nebraska or they have a visit with Nebraska or all of those things. Like it's just become so like just such a big part of everything that we do because players are posting it out there for the world to see. And like, it's, it's helpful in a way because, you know, they, they, announce their own news and break their own news. If I'm gonna lose a scoop to somebody, it might as well be the person who knew that it is to share. I mean, you just have to be really plugged in on Twitter with coaches and then Instagram with athletes. That seems to be where all of the Gen Zers are these days.
0: So there's a recruit, let's say there's some 18 year old recruit or 17 year old recruit at some high school and you are you know, a woman in your twenties. Is it okay for us as adults? I'm actually being serious to follow high school kids on on social media platforms?
1: It's so tricky because I feel gross about it. Like I feel gross about the entire industry, but that's another conversation for another day. But I don't anymore. I did when I was early in my career um, because I was covering a lot of that much more than I am now. So I do columns and like big feature projects is typically where I'm at. And then I assist with breaking news when needed. So, I don't really touch a lot of the recruiting coverage anymore, but yeah, it just it feels grimy to me. But like even when I was 22, 23, I had hard set rules for when I would text high school kids. And all of those things, Um, I broke the rule once because there was a shooting in a parking lot outside their high school. And I just wanted to check in and make sure everybody was okay. That's the only time I ever broke my do not text past 10 p.m.
0: rule. Let's say there is some five star quarterback recruit who might be coming to Nebraska and he's 18 years old or 17 years old. And he plays quarterback at so and so high school in so and so town. And you see he's on Instagram. Would you not reach out to him at this point that way?
1: I mean, I would reach out to him that way, but there's a difference between like following them and like looking at all of their high school antics every day versus sending a DM and be like, hey, can we talk about this? But again, I would only send that like DM like during normal working hours just because like me as a woman texting a 17 year old kid, like even if it's for my job, I still get a little, gro- a little bit grossed out by it just because he's a minor.
0: I think it's really weird. I think it's a creepy line. And I think there are a lot of people in the business who regularly text minors and they're doing it in a professional way. I still think it's a weird, I don't really want to spend my life texting 17 year olds.
1: You know? Yeah, me either. But I mean, like high school coverage is so important, so we can't get rid of it because high school sports are like the purest level that we have left. But yeah it's hard to reconcile with all of it
0: you alluded to the grossness of this business and there is a lot of grossness in this business and sports and i asked you before we started if i could ask you about a situation from your career and you said sure 2019 montana state university's play by play broadcaster jay sanderson announced he was leaving his position as the voice of the bobcats to attend to family matters a website you know 406 mts sports they had documents he was under investigation for sexual misconduct and harassment And that he was harassing you. Uh, Mm -hmm. You covered the team. The guy, you know, cited health issues for leaving, but you reported that he sent you harassing letters, made explicit comments, et cetera, et cetera. What is that to go through?
1: Yeah, it was uh, really tough um, because we were friends at first. So he went to the University of Kansas for three years before he transferred to Wichita State. And then I obviously went to the University of Kansas. So when you moved to a far flung place. Like I'd never been to Montana before, before I moved there. And, you know, just having somebody, even if they lived like five hours away that, you know, knows where you come from is like really comforting. And we have a ton of mutual friends and all of that. So we had a pretty decent relationship before all of this happened. Um, So that's, I think one of the most hurtful things about all of it is just that, again, you don't truly know people, right. And what they're capable of, So it's just, it sucked. The harassing texts started before the assault happened, but I just, I tried not to think anything of the texts. He's drunk and being flirty and is trying to get me to sleep with him. I'm just, whatever, we'll disregard that. Um,
0: Which you shouldn't have to, which to be clear is such a fucking common thing for women where they have to be like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to disregard that which you shouldn't have to
1: yeah yeah it's just so widespread and commonplace that that's usually the natural reaction is just to like all right well we're gonna ignore that and pretend it never happened and then he assaulted me at the big sky media days in uh spokane we were all like kind of talking in a circle with coaches and other media members and our family members and he came around because we were standing next to each other and he came around from the back and slid his hand up into my genital region like in front of everybody in front of everyone and for the longest time I thought nobody saw um but somebody did and that person I owe them a lot for validating my story Um, because because women aren't typically believed Uh, when this stuff happens, there's no way he would do that. Well, he did. And someone saw it, but yeah. So he stepped down from his post before any of this came out because his dad had health issues, which is true. Like that's not a fake thing, but it's just a very convenient excuse. And then it came out a short while later. Um, and I had left because I, I sent this over when I was on my way out of Montana because, I knew there you couldn't be anonymous with this because I, at the time, was one of the only female sports journalists in the entire state. Um, there were a couple TV people, but it was pretty easy to tell who it was by just reading through the line. So I waited until I was on my way out because I knew there was no way that I could work in that state after this had come out. Like, I just knew that that just wasn't going to be possible for me. And it wasn't because the message boards are a hellhole anyway. Um, but when I left, you know, going to cover LSU, everyone is so happy for me and all of that stuff. And then when this comes out, I'm an ugly pig and a liar and she was never that good anyway. And I'm just like, you were the same people who were so excited for me and said I did a really good job just a couple of months ago.
0: From a sort of emotional standpoint, what is that like to go through?
1: Um, it's really tough because somebody violated you, and so you don't have agency over your own body, but also, like as an added wrinkle onto that, like you know them, or at least you think you do, and so that just it shatters your worldview in a way because the reality that you thought existed is now gone. You lose a friend in that situation, but not only that, like. You have to avoid that person as much as you can and that draws a rift in your other friendships with other people because they naturally take sides and it just sucks it just sucks all the way around and it affects the way that you do your job because this happened at a work event for me so i'm trying to work and network and just do my job and there is this looming figure just around knowing what he did to me while I'm trying to do my job and be productive. And it's exhausting. And this is not the first time that this has happened with somebody in our industry, like the third time that it's happened for me, not the most recent, but it's still hard every time because we talk about coaches and players and people who are high up in their respective sports, having all this power that goes unchecked. Men in this industry have a lot of that too. There's also a God complex with several of them because they've gotten to where they are and they think that they're untouchable and it just sucks.
0: Reading this fucking asshole's comments after.
1: Well, they're the worst, aren't they?
0: I think it's going to bear out when all is said and done. My wife knows it's not true. Those closest to me know it's not true. I got a lot of really good people supporting me. It's not true. I didn't do what she said I did. Somebody wants to read them as sexually suggestive. That's fine. They were not intended that way. I viewed her as a friend and there was one friend ribbing another. Me giving her a hard time. That's all. Ha ha. Like I would fucking punch this guy in the fucking face. Like,
1: yeah, when I read those, I'm like, are you fucking serious?
0: You know i've had sort of pioneers women who sort of were pioneer, py- leslie vissard uh different women who came along there in early ages where it wasn't even slightly hidden just you walk into a locker room and the guy's like hey how about that you know like that the really really blatant And inv- do you feel like as a woman in this field there are a good number of barriers you have to go through do you feel like you have to prove yourself in a way do you have to prove your knowledge in a way do you have to prove that you're serious in a way in most situations or do you feel like it's just the assholes like this guy every now and then who come along?
1: I mean, I feel like I have to prove myself in a way because you have all the people who are like, Oh, you never played the sport. I'm like, you wouldn't say that to a man, even though he may have not played the sport. (laughs) Right, Right. So, okay. But I feel like most of the barriers and grossness stuff for me personally, comes from the men in our industry. It's not the coaches and the players. And everybody's story is different, right? Like some young millennial women have had issues with coaches as we've seen. The Athletic has documented that pretty, pretty well, but that's not my story. My story is several men in this industry have been super gross to me. Um, and the players and coaches haven't been It just sucks because it's 2022, it's almost 2023, and it doesn't feel like this problem is going away. And it sucks because I just want to do my job. Like, that's all I want to do. I don't want to put up with this bullshit. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's just back from therapy. Lord, all you Gen Z's keep getting therapy. Does this even help?
1: Don't put me in a box.
0: Ugh, fine, fine. So what'd she say? Did you resolve your emotional unraveling? Are you triggered by something a teacher said?
1: You wouldn't understand. And what she said is, I need something warm and comforting in my life. Something that makes me feel loved and secure.
0: Well, here I am.
1: No, she suggested I go to royalretros.com and choose out an item from their suite of throwback shirts, sweatshirts, winter caps, and jerseys. Something that brings me happiness and fulfillment.
0: Ugh, this is so freaking ridiculous. Can't we just buy you a Snuggie?
1: You're so 1998.
0: You're a Nebraska kid. I am. and raised on a farm outside of Funk, Nebraska, a town I've Ooh. never heard of. Is it is Funk, Nebraska funky?
1: No, it's pretty boring, actually. Um, <laughs> the town of 200 people... When I was little, there used to be a school and a coffee shop, but neither of those are there anymore. So um, the only businesses in town are the post office and the grain elevator. There's a volunteer fire department, and then the school has been turned into like a community center. Um, so you can have weddings there, I guess, if you want.
0: Here's my question. Funk, Nebraska, tiny town. I'm from a tiny town, but not that tiny. Why did you even want to become a sports writer? Where does that come from?
1: So when I was little, my parents subscribed to three four newspapers and I would read them like my one of my favorite pictures of me as a child is I am laying on the ground I am eight months old maybe in this picture and I'm holding a newspaper upside down as I'm laying on the ground and I don't know I've just always been enthralled with print I've read it for as long as I can remember and I really liked to write and I really liked sports. And I just felt that putting the two together was a natural thing for me. I don't really have that aha moment where I knew I wanted to do this because I was just so young. But yeah, so I would read the Omaha World Herald columnists and the Lincoln Journal Star columnists and their reporters. And I would just soak everything in as much as I could, partially because I enjoyed it, but also partially because I was in a class that was, you know, mostly boys and I like wanted something to talk about with them. So I would watch the game and like read in the newspaper columnists and reporters takeaways from it when they were there. And yeah, that's just kind of how it went.
0: When you go to Kansas, are you there to become a journalist? Like period. Yeah. I'm here to become a journalist. That's it. I'm here to become a yeah. journalist.
1: Oh yeah. So you know when Your kids are little and my name's Susie and I'm eight. My favorite color is green and I want to be a mermaid when I grow up. Like I put sports journalist or sports broadcaster, sports reporter. The oldest we can find is like second grade.
0: You were in second grade, knew you wanted to be a sports writer.
1: Yeah, I was in eighth grade when I knew I wanted to go to Kansas and I was still living in funk at the time. And my mom was like, why? thanks to a middle school boyfriend. Um, I just thought KU was cool and I didn't want to go to Nebraska because everybody goes to Nebraska and that's lame. Um, I, I want to do something different. And then as I get older and I like research the journalism school at KU and like the scholarships that I could get and they are super interested in me. And for my 16th birthday, all I wanted was an, like an official visit to KU. So that's what we did for my 16th birthday. And I fell in love with it. And it was a cold, gloomy, gross November day. And I fell in love with it. And I'm like, yep, I'm going here.
0: You interned at the Washington Post. I did. Which is a huge... It's so funny. I'm sitting here at 50 years old. And I still have pangs of jealousy that you had a Washington Post internship. Like I would have killed, killed for a Washington Post internship. Did it live up to the whatever one would think a Washington Post internship would be?
1: Yes, because I was... I wasn't just clerking or just sitting on the desk and getting things hand fed to me. Like I was doing like real reporting and real stories. And what helped me was that it was an Olympic year. So a lot of reporters were taking their vacation before they went to the Olympics. So I, for the Washington football team, I was essentially their third for most of training camp before my internship left. And I like got to write, you know, some pretty cool stories. I had a story. I had one story that was centerpieced on the sports front of the Washington post. Um, it was a feature story about a blind rower who was trying to make the Paralympics. Um, it was a really cool story, but yeah, there was just, I got to do so many cool things like walked, like 15 holes at congressional with Ken Griffey Jr. Because, you know, he was you know getting ready to go into the Hall of Fame, that type of thing, because he did a pro-am. And it was just like his warm-up swings were like him swinging a baseball bat. And then, you know, he would just launch his... Oh, my God. It was so much fun. But I learned a lot, too, because I was around some of the best of the best. And I was, you know, 21 years old it was an awesome experience. Um, I'm so glad I got to do it and it worked out for the best because every internship pairing, like your fellow intern in your section, like sometimes you have the same interest and sometimes you don't. And it worked out great for me because I love baseball, but I'm allergic to peanuts. And so it's a whole problem. It sucks. I hate it, but I haven't been to a ballpark in years because I just feel like shit every time I'm at a ballpark because there are peanuts everywhere. But my co-intern June Lee loves baseball. And so he would did all the baseball stuff and I did all the NFL stuff. And it was great.
0: There's a lot to unpack here. Hold on.
1: I know. I know. I'm sorry. Wait, when I get going, I get going.
0: You're literally allergic to peanuts. Going to a baseball game is a problem for you.
1: I haven't been to a baseball game in years and it makes me sad.
0: All right. The Washington Post calls tomorrow. Yeah. Amy, we want to offer you $500,000 to cover the Washington Nationals. I couldn't do it. You actually couldn't do it.
1: No. I covered the Royals as a stringer for the AP when I was in college. As soon as I would get to the press box, I would take some allergy medicine and then chug a ton of soda so I wouldn't fall asleep. And I just felt awful like the entire time. So when I'm around peanuts, I get headaches. And then after a while, if it doesn't go away, I get really nauseous. So that's no way to do your job every day
0: forever. We will pay you $7 million a year to cover the Washington Nationals and provide you with all the medication and soda you need. You in?
1: I mean, for that, yeah. Like what's my health percent for whatever number of money that was.
0: 2006, you're an intern at the Washington Post.
1: 2016.
0: Uh, uh, excuse me, 2016. And uh, I found a story, you know, Ziggy Hood out to make mark with Redskins as he nears twilight of career. As Coach Jay Gruden predicted back in May following free agency, New Washington Redskins Ziggy Hood has been making a mark in training camp. The eighth year defensive end has been taking first team reps, although he slotted as his third string right defensive end behind Chris Baker and Stephen Pay on the newest unofficial depth chart. I'm really fascinated. Here you are, young Amy. You're covering the Redskins for the Washington Post or whatever. 20, how old are you? 20 years old?
1: At that point, I'm like 21. Yeah. Cause I could drink on that trip. On You're that
0: 21, you could drink. I'm sure you didn't, but you could drink on this trip. You're in Washington, D.C., not drinking. Are you, I don't know, like I was scared shitless interviewing pro athletes at that point. Were you, did you never have that?
1: No. So I, so what helped me there is I, was a stringer for the AP for two years before that, covering Chiefs games and KU football games and Kansas basketball games and any big event in the Kansas City area. So I'd interviewed NFL players before, so that wasn't scary to me. What gets me is the size difference, because I'm like five two on a good day. So that's always funny. Um, but, no, I'm never really intimidated – Cause again, that small town upbringing, you have to be able to talk to everybody. And my dad is really good at that. So yeah, you just treat people like they're people. And that's how I go about it. Maybe Ken Griffey Jr. Might've been the only one.
0: Yeah. And he's pretty easy actually, I gotta say.
1: Yeah, he was great. Um, but you know, I'm a 21 year old kid who's looked up to him forever. You know, my, uh, fun fact in like elementary school, mine was always that he and I were born on the same day, just several years apart.
0: Let me just tell you two things. Number one, this is dating myself, but my favorite player as a kid was Ken Griffey Sr. by far. Number two, I was working on a story for Newsday about a baseball player in the camp with the Reds named Joe Valentine. And he was raised by two mothers. And this is a long time ago now. Griffey was still playing. And it was very unusual that you would have anything coming out about gay and baseball because it's such a conservative mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and i started doing the story about joe valentine being raised by gay parents and i'm going around to different players and they're basically like i don't want to talk about that i don't want to talk about it. the washington nationals pr guy at the time literally asked me not to ask players about this subject so i go up to griffey jr and i'm like uh hey junior blah 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 and i'm expecting him to be like i don't want to talk about that he goes my best friend is gay. I wouldn't care if there's a gay teammate. I just always remember Griffey Jr. being this open-minded bastion of loveliness in a clubhouse of kind of assholes. And it warmed my heart forever to Ken Griffey Jr., who I enjoyed anyway. So you picked a good guy to uh, root for.
1: All because we, you know, share the same birthday. I was like, oh, he's cool.
0: There you go. There you go. Um, did you have to change your voice, change your approach, change your way of looking at sports when you become a columnist, does that change from being a beat writer to becoming a columnist?
1: I'm still figuring that out, right? I'm only six months into this. I'm, you know, 28 now. I feel like my feature writing, like you can see that in my column. Sometimes it takes me a long time to get to the point because I'm trying to figure that out as I'm writing. Because I I still look at games the same, but I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Like, I'm still figuring it out.
0: What what do you mean you don't know if that's the right thing to do? How do you mean?
1: I just, I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do anything when you're writing other than plagiarism. Don't do that. But I mean, everybody comes to their craft from different ways. And now that I'm a colonist, I don't know if I should be like hyper- critical of like every play, or if I just let the game unfold in front of me and draw on the emotions of what's going on. Um, That's how I did it this last season. But we'll see if I tweak my approach as I get more veteran at this, I suppose.
0: You are 100% my kind of writer, like 100%. I'm all in on this. Like you, like I teach at a school out here. And I always say like, I always say like, who wants to be a journalist? I always ask the class, who wants to be a journalist? And you get like, whatever, five or six, raise their hand. And I was like, yeah, but do you, like, do you really want to be a journalist? Like, do you want it? You know, like, do you want it or do you want it? Are you willing to move here? Are you willing to do cover this? And I was always willing. I mean, I always just wanted it. And you seem like someone who just always wanted it. And I totally freaking love that. And it, it shows in your writing. I just think it does. I think it, you sort of ooze a certain level of passion and knowledge that is really delightful. Am I misreading that? Like you're sort of, no,
1: no, you're not at all. I, um, I love this job. I wanted to do it since I was little. I embrace everywhere that I've been. I have so many Montana Grizzlies sweatshirts and t-shirts and got a couple LSU shirts and hoodies and jackets, um, some saints stuff. Um, I just, I embrace everywhere that I've been because I like my job and I like the communities that I've lived in and I go back to Montana for at least four weeks every summer and I'm going back to New Orleans for Mardi Gras this year. Can't wait for that. But yeah, I just, I don't know how you can do your job any other way. Like I have to be enthusiastic and, you know, care a lot and like, yeah, maybe I'm working on a really depressing story and that's hard to like get up for, but You also look at it as, well, somebody afforded, like they're affording you the opportunity to tell their story. Um, And so you should be grateful for that because not everybody lets everybody in. But yeah, I go to work every day, just happy that I have this job and trying to not just prove to other people that I can do it, but prove it to myself because being a columnist, I was hired at 27. It's kind of crazy.
0: If you could clap your hands or snap your fingers and social media vanishes and we no longer have to do it, would you take that deal? Yeah. <laughs> you grew up with it, though. That's the difference between you and me. I've had to adjust to it and you grew yes up.
1: And, yes and no. Like, I remember a time before Twitter. It came out when I was like a freshman at high school. Yeah. And like, I remember a time before Instagram. You know, I remember the before but not by much. And I'm like one of the last of the group of people to do so. Cause I'm a young millennial and I like, obviously there's like dates and stuff, but um to like, what is a millennial and what is Gen Z. But I feel like the big social divide between the young millennials and the old Gen Z, air quotes because they're not old, um, is if they remember 9-11 or not. And I do. And the Gen Z coworkers that I have who are only a few years younger than me don't. So I feel like that's the dividing line in addition to the years.
0: I mean, I'm I'm from New York, lived through 9-11. And it's super weird. It kind of reminds me like when my parents would talk about the Kennedy assassination. And it was all just a hypothetical to me because I wasn't born for it. It's very weird to have a huge event in your life and have people who have no connection to it whatsoever, understandably, because they either weren't alive or weren't old enough. Let me ask you a final question. My friend Peter King gave you his love tattoo of the week. I uh, love that guy. Uh, oh, he's the bad. Peter King is one of the absolute nicest people. There it is. And there it is. Tattoo of the week. It is on your right bicep, excuse me. And it says Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of the press. And you have it tatted on your right bicep. Explain.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I really liked the First Amendment class that I took in college. I had a really great professor, Janelle Belmas. Love that lady. And so yeah, after that school year was over, um, after I graduated, I was deciding what I wanted for my next tattoo. And I decided that I was going to get an abridged version of the First Amendment. And I was in talks with going to Montana at the time, but that hadn't been finalized. And so When I get tattoos, I leave my phone on a table somewhere and don't look at it because I'm a little jumpy. And when it buzzes, I don't want, you know, the artist to make a mistake. And so the first thing I check or the first thing I see when I check my phone after getting the First Amendment tattoo is that my uh, future congressman assaulted a reporter. And I'm like, well, isn't that great? He is now the governor of the state of montana
0: wonderful it's great the guys awesome well listen i'm a huge fan truly am an admirer of your work i'm so happy that that fucking asshole didn't ruin your career like i really am it, it it would have easily been understandable for you to be like i don't need this ship i'm going to become a dentist like i don't i don't need this ship. but you didn't and I just think it, it speaks to your sort of whatever character and strength and determination and your love of journalism. And, um, thank you for, thank you for appearing on my mediocre podcast. I appreciate it.
1: It's not mediocre. You say that I had another one in like 2020. I can't say who it is. Cause my lawyer told me not to, but after that, I almost quit.
0: So you had another person in the business.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. But no, after that, I almost quit. Cause so I'm just like, how many more times can this keep happening to me? Why didn't you? the pandemic came shortly thereafter and I was terrified that I wouldn't get a job in anything else. So I stuck it out, didn't lose my job and it took me a long time to find the love for it again though.
0: This is a weird observation. You think about journalists and you think about mostly men, right? And it's usually men surrounded by men. A lot of journalists, not the coolest guys in the world, not the most socially savvy guys in the world. Um, I've been around a lot of, a lot of awkward, uncomfortable sort of men who like, don't know how to talk to women. Is this profession full of men who don't know how to deal with women? I don't know. There's
1: a segment of that. There's also a segment of really great men in our
0: industry. Of course. Um,
1: But it's the bad apples that ruin it for everyone. Unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is a very
1: depressing conversation. No, but-
0: no, no. I think it's important to have these conversations. To be honest with you, I really do, and uh, no. I don't think I don't like pretending that this shit doesn't happen anymore, or that our industry is fixed, or that it's super easy for women now. Women now, blah 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 blah. You know, I hate that shit when it's like, oh, it's easy. It's an even playing field. It's it's not. It's not. It
1: and it. I don't know if it ever will be, because like the way that I approach my job is so different than everybody else. Like I have like three different scripts for how I get phone numbers because I can't just walk up to somebody and say, Hey, can I have your phone number? Like I always have to do it at like the end of an interview. Hey, if I have any follow-up questions, can I have your phone number? So I can ask you follow-up questions about this thing. I was telling one of my friends that and he's like, I never even thought about that. I'm like, yeah. Cause I don't want to come across as sleazy and, Trying to hit on people because that's obviously not my prerogative. I just want to do my job. It is like ask players or coaches out for a meal. Like I always ask them out for lunch and I always invite their wife and girlfriend.
0: Like I could say to a coach, uh, you want to grab a beer sometime and sit down. You cannot do that.
1: I can, but I have to, I usually invite their spouse to make it be like, Hey, not hating on you trying to work. You have to think about things in a different way just so nothing gets misconstrued. It's just become a part of my daily life now where I don't really think about it anymore just because it's routine for me now. You have to think about things differently. Like there's just no way around it.
0: Well listen, you're going to go down as one of the best journalists of this era. I truly believe that. So don't go to dental school. Do not quit your job. Seriously, don't let the fuckers win.
1: Med school sounds worse than anything
0: well thank you for appearing on my podcast you're right this was kind of a depressing episode but that's all good that's okay i'm sorry oh it's my fault i guess i could have just asked questions about scott frost but uh well
1: that's a depressing topic too so
0: not if you don't give a shit (laughs) very (laughs) true yeah um well thank you so much for doing this and for opening up and and for sharing your very sad christmas tree with with me (laughs)
1: it's a good christmas tree it 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 is it's small
0: fair enough thank you thank you i want to thank today's guest amy just for joining me on two riders singing yang you can follow amy on twitter at amy and that's a-m-i-e underscore just and read her work in the lincoln journal star and at husker if you have a chance and enjoy two riders singing yang please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review i make no money during this podcast and i rely on word of mouth music is by the great mc white Alf. thanks again for joining me and remember Keep writing.